All right, fools, welcome to the QTR Podcast. Today is August 3rd, 2022. So happy that you are with me for this first one-of-a-kind joint-released podcast that I am doing with my dear friends over at Palisades Gold Radio, only because I had an interview set up with them, and I covered everything that I would normally be saying during uh, one of my own podcasts, so I asked my kind friend Tom Bodrovich over there if he would be all right with me releasing the podcast as my own, and of course he said yes, because they are wonderful, and so what follows today is my interview with Palisades Gold Radio as well, and so I want to give them a shout out, and also I want to shout out the people that continue to support my podcast, like my friends at JM Bullion, my exclusive gold and silver provider. They have been in business for nearly a decade. They've done over $3 billion in sales, and they are the only place that I buy my gold and silver bullion from. Hello to JM Bullion. I love you guys. QTR podcast listeners have their own contact at JM Bullion. The lovely Laura, L-A-U-R-A at jmbullion.com. You can shoot her an email. You can ask her anything you would like. And of course, if you don't want to talk to her directly, you can just browse the website. They have incredible inventory discreetly packaged and shipped right to your home so you can stockpile with the rest of the gold, silver, and ammunition that I'm sure you have stockpiled somewhere deep in your basement or uh, maybe just in your pockets right now. I don't know. (laughs) This podcast also brought to you by my dear friends over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. George Gammon has teamed up with Lynn Alden, Chris McIntosh, and Brent Johnson, and many other people to bring you an incredible platform to help you preserve your wealth in a world of -of out-of-control central banks. Rebel Capitalist is a great YouTube channel to follow. George Gammon is a great podcast listen and wonderful resource to help break down exactly how the global macro economy and the Keynesian shit show uh, works from the inside out. And Rebel Capitalist Pro is well worth the money. They have some incredible forums, some incredible mock portfolios. You get access to people like Lynn Alden's premium content. I love reading their updates, their macro takes on the market. And George Gammon is a friend of my podcast and somebody whose opinion and insights I value and trust. So check out Rebel Capitalist Pro and JM Bullion. Those links are in the podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room, the best piece of software ever put together to help you track flow in the options market, which a lot of times can help you figure out decisive moves in the equities market. Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus are two must-follows if you are in the industry, if you work in finance. They have been doing the FinTwit thing since I have been around, which is 10 years now. 10 years I've been on uh, Twitter talking out of my ass about finance, (laughs) and these guys have been around for all of it. And in the midst of that, they have been constantly updating uh, this wonderful piece of software called the Steam Room, and they have a wonderful community uh, of traders and people that they discuss um, their day-to-day with. So they have some great free Twitter follows, at Sanglucci, at Wall Street Jesus. Those are in my podcast description. But also, they'll let you check out the Steam Room if you want to for free. Uh, no credit card, no bullshit. Just tell them QTR sent you and you want a free trial. Go see my friends over at Sanglucci and the Steam Room and Wall Street Jesus. Love those guys. OGs of tracking unusual options activity. This podcast also brought to you by one of my favorite substacks to read, Doomberg, 
Doomberg is just, if it shows up in my inbox, I read it immediately. Wonderful take on energies and commodities uh, and a skeptical take on the markets, often with a Austrian-style lens like we have here on this podcast. Doomberg, you can check out that link in my podcast description as well. And I want to thank Max Mulvihill, people like Chris Bede, Russ Valenti, Jay Mintzmeyer, my friends over at Investors Live, and all the people that have continued to support me on Patreon. You can sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum if you want to help support the podcast. And also, if you want to help support it, you can check out my blog, Fringe Finance, quotetheraven.substack.com. The link is in my podcast description. But for now, why don't we get on with the interview? As with all my podcasts, there is a three-drink minimum on this podcast. I am not a registered investment advisor. This is not investment advice. I hold no licenses, no registrations, and generally don't have a clue what I am talking about. Ladies and gentlemen, my wonderful interview with Tom Bodrovich from Palisades Gold Radio. We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. Welcome to Palisades Gold Radio. I'm your host, Tom Bodrovix. Joining me today is Chris Irons, host of the Quoth the Raven podcast and author of QTR's Fringe Finance Substack. How are you today, Chris? I'm great, Tom. Before we get started, I owe your listeners an enormous apology for the last discussion that we had where the audio quality was absolutely terrible on my part. And I wish I had a good excuse other than I was at the beach and I was being lazy, but that was pretty much the case. (laughs) I was walking on my way to go surfing that day and I had my phone out in the wind and, you know, I just, I owe everybody an apology because the audio turned out terribly and I have too much respect for your show, too much reverence for the content that you constantly talk about and cover that nobody else does. And I have too much respect for your listeners. So I, I really apologize for that. And I just want everybody to know that that was my fault. That was not Palisades Gold Radio's fault. But now I'm inside and I'm fully caffeinated and I'm talking <laughs> into an expensive microphone so, but I just want to get that housekeeping out of the way and just let you also know that I'm, you know, I'm very sorry. Well, I, I appreciate that, Chris. And, you know, the, the respect is mutual and there's a lot of research that shows that there's some great ideas that come to you while you're walking. So maybe the, <laughs> maybe the, the sacrifice in audio quality was worth it considering some of the ideas that we talked about last time. Even if I have to feel like Jeff Spicoli, you know, apologizing at (laughs) fast times for, uh, dude, uh, class was today, you know, like, (laughs) dude, I'm going surfing, man. I'll just do the interview while I'm walking through the fucking 55 mile an hour winds. No problem. (laughs) Well, Chris, you know, we've got a lot to talk about today for really newsworthy happening since the last time we spoke. And I appreciate you coming on to give us your take on this. So why don't we start with a couple of happenings from around China? There's a lot to talk about here. And of course, you wrote last week that China has been spying on the Fed. So how do you think this plays into their strategy of trying to really de-dollarize over the last decade? Well, I didn't write this. This was a, I commented on it, but the article in the story was broken by the Wall Street Journal. And the Wall Street Journal was reporting on an investigation that was put forth in Congress, I think by one of the Republican-led subcommittees. And that investigation in Congress 
was actually based on the findings of an investigation that came out of the Fed, which is kind of funny because after all the dust settled here and it was found that basically China tried to infiltrate the Federal Reserve, they tried to spy on the Fed, they even almost kidnapped a U.S. economist who was overseas. They apparently detained one of our economists and was asking, you know, we're asking him for commentary on the thought process behind our monetary policy decisions before they would let him go. And lo and behold, the story breaks and Jerome Powell's stance on the story apparently is like, hey, everything's fine. You know, we looked into it. There's no problems. The Fed has great security. And, you know, if somebody was trying to, you know, we're happy that our, you know, our measures worked rigorously, you know, our rigorous security measures held up and worked. And by the way, it's nothing we should talk about. So let's just sweep it under the rug, which I thought was baffling because the idea of China trying to infiltrate the Federal Reserve just plays into this long held belief that I have written about and commented on. I mean, I've only been writing on my blog for a year, but it's about as long held as you could (laughs) as you can have for the year that I've been writing this, you know, years long belief that China wants to challenge the dollar as the global reserve currency. And China seeks to be an economic superpower on the global stage in a way that, you know, I don't think a lot of people can conceive of. And so this all started about, you know, uh, over the last decade with China and Russia starting to de-dollarize, starting to reduce the amount of exposure that they had transacting in U.S. dollars. In the case of Russia, I think they completely dumped all of their dollar-based FX reserves, all of their treasuries. China did not do that. But both countries in the midst of this had also been stockpiling their gold. And so when you look at the idea of Russia invading Ukraine and the sanctions that were supposedly coming from the West that was supposed to deter Russia from what they were doing, which, of course, turned out to completely backfire and not do anything at all. I mean, Russia said, yeah, go ahead. You know, you want to you want to implement these sanctions. That's fine. We've got oil and we've got gold and may the best man win. And of course, the ruble made a V-shaped recovery after that, as I think global global FX investors started to realize, you know, that's really where the turkey is, where the meat and potatoes of a country's reserves are, their productive capacity and their access to commodities and their gold reserves, you know, not in their ability to throw $9 trillion on a balance sheet anytime somebody sneezes and the stock market goes down 2%. And so what we have here with Russia invading Ukraine, and then, you know, you have all these sanctions from the West, is China being driven closer to Russia, Russia and the BRIC nations. I wrote about this is a stunning story from about that. I think that broke in late June that nobody's talking about that all the BRIC nations have decided and announced publicly that they are going to be starting their own global reserve currency. You know, just a just a bit of light news on a Tuesday that got thrown under the rug. But now you have China that's buying. Russian oil, as many on your podcast predicted, as I predicted, as guys like Luke Groman predicted and George Gammon and all these super smart guys, you know, all these people that predicted would happen. China buying strategic Russian oil assets, which, of course, are selling for a discount or at least were selling for a discount 
when the conflict in Ukraine started, which I mean, those are just wonderful purchases that are going to benefit China for decades to come. You have a recovery in the ruble as Russia seeks to close out their sales of oil in, in, in rubles or in gold and not in dollars. And you have this situation where China and Russia have been forced to ally themselves, not even forced. They've kind of voluntarily allied themselves with India, with Saudi Arabia, you know, with the BRIC nations, and they've become a unit together. And now the West and our fiat currency, and as John Anthony West would say, our striped toothpaste and all the other innovations that we've come up with over here, <laughs> including the ability to print $9 trillion again every time the stock market sneezes, we're on one side. And then all of a sudden on the other side, you have these nations with these enormous productive capacity, enormous quality and quantity of commodities, this enormous respect, at least it appears like for sound money that we don't have on the other side. And so is it any surprise to me now that what we've seen this week with Nancy Pelosi wanting to go over to Taiwan has begat more verbose rhetoric from China? No, it doesn't. And I wrote this morning that I think Chinese equities could very similarly suffer the same fate as Russian equities in the not too distant future, because I think China has made up their mind that they want Taiwan. I think Russia had their mind made up about Ukraine and China had their mind made up about Taiwan ahead of time. I think they both play a long game. I think that their efforts to de-dollarize over the last decade were not a mistake. I think the fact that Russia waited to do this until Joe Biden was in office is not a mistake. I think that them waiting to do this until the United States was suffering from serious inflation is not a mistake. I think the fact that the supply chain, much of which comes from Asia, comes from China, is gummed up at the moment, whether that be on purpose or not, and we can talk about COVID lockdowns and that, is not a mistake. I think the timing is precise. I think it's surgical. And I'm not sure that, you know, hopefully our intelligence agencies over here who did a good job, at least in predicting that Russia was going to invade Ukraine, hopefully they understand that this is all part of a, a longer game as well. But China infiltrating the Fed, that just fits right into the long game that I think China is playing here. And it doesn't surprise me at all. As I wrote in that article, you know, I have a little bit of experience in analyzing US listed China based equities. With mm -hmm. that came a little bit of work with some Chinese nationals, with a little bit of understanding about, you know, how the Chinese government works. I'm by no means a CIA analyst. I'm by no means an FBI analyst. I'm not an expert, but I think I know slightly more. I have slightly better pulse of the ethos of this country than the average person. And what I can say is, the idea that these Chinese spies keep kind of popping out of nowhere. Oh, one there. Hey, there's a doctor at Harvard that's, you know, sharing secrets with China. Oh, OK. There's a Fang Fang. Remember her just banging her way around the old U.S. political spectrum, you know, sleeping with one politician after the other, all the way from local fundraiser, all the way up to, you know, sleeping with members of the House in order to gain access to information. There was a guy on the New York Police Department who was found out to be a Chinese spy. And now we have reports that China was trying to infiltrate the Fed. China plays a long, 
long, slow game when it comes to this type of espionage. They're very good at it. And Chinese spies are probably in lots of places that we don't even think about, know about, and certainly haven't been publicized yet. And so the point to put a bow on this first of many long-winded diary of the mouth (laughs) style points that I'll be making, the point is that I don't think any of this stuff is a coincidence and it needs to be looked at collectively together amidst all the other geopolitical news instead of being brushed under the rug. And I just want to read to you and to your listeners what Jerome Powell said about this when it broke. Uh, Even more stunning is that despite the fact that the congressional investigation's findings were helped along by, quote, a separate internal Fed investigation conducted by the central bank in 2015, the Fed doesn't seem like it wants to acknowledge that China is even a threat. The Fed provided its findings to Congress in 2020, Tom, but now appears to be recanting their findings, disputing, quote, many results of the inquiry, quote, and even now mysteriously saying... (laughs) I like this one. It, quote, cannot locate some of the investigative materials, quote, from years past. And I just don't believe that. I don't buy it. And I don't think anybody is taking it as seriously as it needs to be. Well, and to that point, Chris, you know, you and I were chatting a little bit about that when you sent me that story last week. And the point that I brought up, and maybe it's worth expanding on here, is if you think that maybe that was strategic, that they kind of downplayed and brushed to the side this idea that there was Chinese espionage in the Fed, maybe because they don't want you know, the idea to be brought forth that they might be doing the same thing in return towards China and or strategic again when you know, the BRICS plus nations come out and say, we're moving towards this other currency. Is it not strategic to just kind of ignore those things? It might be, right? We might be trying to do the same thing. We might be trying to infiltrate, you know, China's central bank with double agents and spies. And maybe it is them just playing it down because either we're doing the same thing or because they just think it's bad PR to come out and say, hey, we handed over the fucking Excel spreadsheets to somebody that shouldn't have had them. Maybe that's what it is. But I've seen enough over the last 10 years, Tom, for me to also consider that maybe they just don't think it's a threat. You know, maybe they just aren't taking it as seriously as they should be. And I'd hate if that was the case. Mm -hmm. And to anybody who hasn't taken their red pill yet, I hate to ruin it for you, but there is a case for just ignorance, for us just not understanding what's going on. And I think it's happened more than once. You know, I hate to bring up these politicians that fell for this Chinese spy. And I wrote in my article, you know, look, I mean this in the nicest way possible, but there were U.S. political officials that (laughs) that were sleeping with this Chinese spy who, you know, not necessarily the best looking individuals. This Fremont mayor, Bill Harrison, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I'm sure he's a wonderful guy, you know, happens to probably be 350, 400 pounds, you know, and when some dainty 110 pound nubile Chinese, you know, mid twenties staffer comes up to you and she can't wait to blow you. And you're thinking to yourself, hey, maybe she really likes me. You know, I'm sorry, but you're just a little naive in that type of situation. So I'd like to say that it's just not us being naive. But I think there is a chance that that's the case. There's also a chance you're right, Tom. There's also a chance that maybe we're doing the same thing. 
Yeah, I mean, there's just so many, so many incentives to consider there, right? And yes. I think that comes back <laughs> to the idea that, you know, maybe not necessarily that power corrupts, but that power can also blind in, in those situations, right? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know. Maybe this guy just, you know, could maybe it would have been the same thing if he just went to the bar. You know, look, everybody's gone to the bar and seen, a, a, you know, a man or a woman talking to a woman or a man who, you know, maybe they're talking to them just because they need to stand next to them because they, they want to get a drink. They're not really interested in them, but the other person's drunk, you know, and they're thinking of themselves. Wow. Like she picked this spot here at the bar to get her Bud Light just so she could be next to me. And it's like, you are not what she's looking for. Sorry. You know, people tell themselves all kinds of narratives all the time. So I don't know if it has anything to do with the fact that these people were politicians, but yeah, certainly I think people do become a little drunk with power with the minimum amount of power here. I mean, this guy was the Fremont mayor. He wasn't the fucking secretary of state. Right. But who knows? Well, you know, Chris, you, you bring up an interesting point, and, and that's about kind of lying to yourself. And of course, we saw last week the White House redefine the definition of recession. So oh. <laughs> I think that's a, a perfect transition. You know, we've, we've seen two negative GDP prints here in a row. So why is it now that we have to decide that we have to redefine the definition of recession? Is it because there wow. are more nuances to consider what constitutes a recession? Or is it that we're just, you know, the old saying of the fox guarding the hen house, the Fed calculating its own CPI figures? Is that the same type of situation there? Well, the byline, I wrote about this last week on my blog, and the byline to the article that I wrote was, don't let them insult your intelligence. You know, I mean, this one is a layup, okay? Trying to come out and say that two negative quarters of GDP in a row is not the definition of a recession. When if you type recession into Google, okay, the left-wing censorship, you know, factory that is Google, the, even the Google definition that it spit out was two negative quarters of GDP. So, you know, even when the people on the left managing the definitions are trying to define recession, look, Everybody on both sides of the aisle, and you could go back and mine many, many hours of, you know, House Financial Services Committee footage and things like that to find people on both sides of the aisle constantly referring to a recession as two negative quarters of GDP. The problem is that the White House and the Fed have run out of shit to try to micromanage and redefine, they've run out of variables to try to mess with, and they're still not getting the numbers that they like. Their hands are a little tied in the sense that they have this inflationary problem, so they can't solve the problem with the money printer right now like they usually do. And, you know, the definition of recession that includes GDP is kind of funny, Tom, because it's this relic kind of from the Austrian school still. Right. When you look at something like inflation that's been redefined to be higher prices instead of expansion of the money supply, you know, that's kind of a Keynesian definition of inflation. The Austrian school definition, like a guy like Peter Schiff, you know, would tell you with a vein bursting out of his forehead <laughs> that the definition of inflation is the expansion of the money supply. As a matter of fact, he was just on Megyn Kelly's podcast a couple of days ago. Great interview where he's arguing just that. The problem with this definition of recession 
is it's one of the last relics of financial common sense. Why? Because it's tied to the idea of productivity. It's really simple. The reason that we use GDP to indicate whether or not a country is in recession is because when GDP is positive, what that is, is it's a productive expansion. It's an economic expansion of the country's productivity. And a recession is a contraction of the country's productivity. So you have this very simple definition that is tied to this old school kind of Austrian thought that productivity really is where your bread is buttered, right? Productivity is is where it all starts from. Productivity is what we seek, not necessarily, you know, oh, this little thing about the jobs number or this little thing about prices. But hey, you know, is the country in an economic expansion? How do you figure it out? Not from all these other little, you know, ticky tacky points. It's whether or not the country's productivity is in the process of expanding or contracting. So the problem with GDP, the problem for the left is it had a very no bullshit technical definition that was tied to Austrian school thinking real economics 101, as Thomas Sowell would call basic economics, right? And those relics of the Austrian days when economics used to make sense and financial and economic laws were easy, that doesn't gel with what we're doing now. So far, we have, you know, the Keynesian MMT system has survived by modifying and redefining everything that doesn't turn up the way that looks good for us. So we just change variables. We micromanage the economy. We change definitions. We fix prices in order to try to arrive at some kind of result that we think we can pass off as a result that's an indicator to most people of a healthy economy, right? So why do we focus on jobs and in this dumbass 2% inflation target. Well, we do that because if we had sound money, you know, those numbers would be absolutely horrifying. So we focus on the things that are convenient in order to try to play off as though the economy is doing well, when really all what we're doing is we're just perpetuating this bubble. And GDP was one of the last kind of old school, you know, definitions that hadn't really been fucked with. You know, Peter Schiff said on this interview he was doing, you know, I've been in the industry for 40 years or 50 years. And he said, you know, recession has never been defined other than the definition of two quarters of negative GDP. So it's not a partisan thing. This was widely accepted by everybody. But but things are going so terribly for the Biden administration and the economy has really locked up in kind of a blue screen of death here over the last six months. Now, granted, these dumbasses are doing everything wrong, you know, like with oil. Okay, we're trying to fix the price of oil to try to bring more supply online. They're doing everything wrong. They have to go through all the wrong answers before they arrive at any decent ones. But this was one of the last quick fixes for them. We'll just come out and we'll put Yellen out there, okay, that is not the definition of uh, of uh, of recession, she said, just like that. That is not the definition of a recession. That's not the technical definition of a recession. You know, she has to know somewhere in the back of her head 
I'm lying. You know, like I'm just, you know, this is a woman who probably is on record. She's probably on a congressional record 450 times defining recession as two negative quarters of GDP. But she's trying to further the party's line in this idea that we're not in recession when the country's productive capacity is in collapse is just stupid. And then these people come back, Tom, and they try to I don't have it in front of me. But the definition they offered up in lieu of two quarters of negative GDP is, in fact, a recession is uh, just a slowdown in economic activity. And it's like, dumbass, like, what do you think that is? What do you think two negative quarters of GDP is? An acceleration in economic activity? So no matter how you define it, you know, the country's in recession. It may be a quick recession, maybe a recession that, you know, ends in a quarter or two, which would be great for them. I'm not sure that it will. But to to pretend like it's not happening is bizarre. It's an insult to everybody's intelligence. I think it's sad. And it is defiling the corpse of the last few molecules of common sense and Austrian school economics left in our system. It's sad. It could also be dangerous though, could it not? If if we're not worried about recession and people, you know, don't <clears throat> maybe people that aren't aware of the things you and I are, but they hear recession might be coming. Okay, maybe I should be saving some money instead of spending this you know, could that maybe exacerbate the next financial crisis by changing all these definitions and ignoring the, just sweeping the problem under the rug? That's a great point. You know, I just wrote an article like two days ago called lying about the economy will only make the coming crash worse. And the point of the article is, look, if you, if you think that this hike in rates that we've had here, I mean, here's a fun fact for you. When the market took a shit in December of 2018, when Steve Mnuchin had to, quote, call the banks. Remember that? Heading into Christmas of 2018, he was going to call the banks. Nobody knew really what that was going to do. But I remember he dutifully reported, you know, hey, I called the banks and they say that they have plenty of assets. It's like, okay, you know, like what what does any of this have to do with the stock market crashing? You know, but Steve Mnuchin had to call the banks And the reason the market wound up crashing in December in 2018 is because three years of rate hikes had finally caught up to the amount of debt that we had outstanding. So I think in December 2018, we were at two and a quarter percent, Tom, which is right where we are now, except instead of getting there in five months like we've done here this year. They got there over the course of three years. So it was a very slow process in which every quarter basis point hike had time to kind of reverberate its way through the economy, you know, take hold. And of course, everybody knows what happens when rate hikes, the cost of servicing debt goes up. People have less discretionary income. A deleveraging cycle starts to happen, you know, where, like you said, people start to save a little bit more. People start to look for the bargains and you get a slowdown in economic activity that had three years to happen. All right. Now what we've seen in these three or four, you know, 50, 75, 100 basis point moves in succession is we've gone from zero to this fever pitch of 225 basis points 
with more dead outstanding than we had in 2018 and a hell of a lot faster, which means that we're going to have more of an aftershock coming with less time to prepare for it when these rate hikes truly make their way through the economic system. And maybe it takes another quarter or two for the shit to hit the fan. I don't really know. But all I know is, you know, it still hasn't processed its way through the economic landscape the way that it had time to back in 2018. And in 2018, of course, famously, we had that crash, which I think was, you know, 10 or 20 percent in just in in December. The point of the article I'm writing or that I wrote was that. This is going to hit a lot quicker and with a lot less warning uh, when these two and a quarter percent start to reverberate through the economic landscape now and those aftershocks start to happen, we're going to get the results of them in a much more surprising, much quicker fashion than we did heading into 2018. And there's a lot more debt outstanding, Tom. So the consequences, there's an argument. A lot of people think, hey, we're on the we're on the cusp of a pivot. Things are going to get better. But there's also an argument that really we're going to see a shock here to the credit markets that we still haven't seen yet. Everybody's kind of written off this concern about shock to the credit markets that that was talked about when the Fed started hiking rates, but nobody's really talking about it anymore, I guess, because the stock market has kind of consolidated a little bit. But there is still going to be a shock in the credit markets here, in my opinion. And coming out and telling people that everything is fine and that we're not in recession when we are, all that is going to do is make it worse. It's going to make a bad situation which will be, you know, three years worth of rate hikes all being all taking place within less than two quarters and all catching up to us at once. It's going to make that bad situation worse. And what I wrote was, you know, when you tell everybody that everything's okay, despite the negative GDP prints, I mean, hopefully, hopefully most people out there get it that we're entering an economic slowdown. We're already in one. We're in recession. But when you tell people everything's okay. You know, the American public is really going to be surprised when everybody capitulates and this deleveraging starts to happen. Right. And I wrote that the veracity and the intensity with which the American public starts to panic once the economic screws get tighter is going to be a direct result of how the current administration is calibrating their expectations for the economy going forward. So, you know, I wrote that telling the public that we're not in a recession, it's not it's not Keynesian economics. It's just Keynesian lying. It's Keynesian doublespeak. And in terms of calibrating the expectation of investors to the market going forward, I think it is an egregious sin because it's going to serve to shock people quicker and further than if we had started kind of leading on. Now, hey, we are we're in a small recession, right? So you'd have that many more American families, Tom, saying, all right, well, maybe we need to tighten the belts here mm-hmm. a little bit, batten down the hatches a little bit. No, he's saying full speed ahead. And meanwhile, we've already crashed into the fucking iceberg, right? And he's still saying, you know, full throttle, right? <laughs> the Titanic, That's not an iceberg. Yeah, doesn't the, fit my definition of iceberg. Yeah, exactly. The Titanic has fucking hit the iceberg. The plane has crashed into the side of the mountain, like he says in The Big Lebowski. And we're still telling people everything's okay. So 
it is really going to shock the shit out of people when and if I think when the credit markets start to lock up a, a little bit. And that's, you know, aside from insulting everybody's intelligence by lying and aside from defiling econ 101 and the basics of economics, both of which are terrible, this is going to make things even worse. But mm-hmm. doing what we always do, Tom, which is taking the chicken shit route out, you know, with the Fed and what whatever the administration, left or right, you know, always does. They take they don't want to take the medicine. They don't want to level with people. They want to take the chicken shit way out, which buys them a little bit of time and then makes things worse when reality eventually sets it. Well, Chris, you know, there's so much emphasis on the Fed, and this is something that I wanted to kind of get your opinion on. You know, we saw the last 75 basis point rate hike from the Fed last week, and it almost seemed like that was good news to the markets as as they pretty much all rallied. So do you think that in some ways the markets are just tired of bad news and their sentiment is changing despite the hawkishness from the Fed, you know, quote unquote, continuing here? Yeah, well, I think a lot of it's perception, right? You do have some, you know, exhaustion, people that are just simply tired of the market moving lower. And so they're looking for any reason to go out and and buy stocks. You know, you call these bear market rallies. They happened in 2008. They happened in, you know, preceding and during every recession we've ever had. And I think on the 75 basis point move, the reason that the market rallied was one, the market got what it was expecting. So just the fact that there was no surprise that it wasn't 74 and it wasn't 76, Tom, that it met expectations, no matter what it is. You know, Mm -hmm. anytime any piece of macroeconomic data meets expectations in the Keynesian system we're in, where the market only goes up, that always goes down as a net positive. So the market will rally, even if it's, you know, guess the number of Doritos in the bag that Jerome Powell brought with his lunch today. You know, consensus estimates are calling for 72 Doritos. We found 72 Doritos. Great. Fucking market rallies. <laughs> doesn't even matter what the data point is, right? So I think the market rallied a little bit on that. Like, hey, we guessed right. It was 75 and the Fed hasn't done anything crazy. Also, too, I wrote a couple weeks ago that there's this expectation that the Fed is eventually going to pivot which I think they will. The expectation generally goes like this. Look, we just had a 9.1% print. Inflation comps going into next year are going to be easier. Doesn't mean inflation is going to stop or really even that it's going to slow, just that the comparables going into next year are going to make it appear as though you know inflation at least isn't accelerating parabolically. That doesn't mean that we're not still going to be having debilitating, brutalizing inflation that will crush the middle class. Just means that the number that pops out is going to look nicer than 9.1%. And I think that there's a chance that even with real rates at negative five, negative 6%, the Fed is going to declare some sort of victory over inflation if that comparable CPI number starts to come down. And then you have mix in the fact that, you know, spot prices on a lot of commodities, at least for the last month, have steadied a little bit. I mean, we had six months of fever pitch, every commodity you could get your hands on going up. So what I noted a couple of weeks ago on my blog was, hey, look, you know, at least for July, the spot price of a lot of commodities, not all of them, but for a lot of them, including this CRB commodity index that I was looking at, you know, has come down a little bit for the month. So you, you have this confluence of factors that lead some people to look at the most 
optimistic of scenarios, which is that the CPI number comes down a little bit. And even though it's terrible, the Fed still declares some success and they start to loosen up their language maybe a little bit before they even take action just to breathe some fresh air into the market that, hey, you know, we may not have to go as hard on QT as we thought. I mean, the Fed hasn't even started offloading assets in the way that it said it was going to yet. I think they're supposed to do that in September. I mean, that that hasn't even happened yet. I thought it was supposed to start in July. I thought so too, but I, I was reading yesterday that they haven't hit full throttle yet. I don't think they hit full throttle until September. So the point of the matter is, you know, we're out here talking about a pivot already, but we haven't seen the data to support that. And while I think it's possible, I think, you know, that's the narrative for people that are going in and buying stocks at a price that still historically, if you're looking at market cap to GDP, you know, could be 20, 30, 40, 50% higher than the mean that we would usually see after a recession. So is it a fool's rally? Is it a, you know, a fool's kind of bear market rally? It might be. Is it possible all those things that I said in the optimistic scenario happen? Yes, I do think it's possible. You know, that is, in essence is the Fed just tipping the scales between tightening policy and allowing inflation to blow off a little bit. It just becomes how they're going to deal with the situation going forward. There's two ways to do it, right? You can default on the debt or you can allow inflation to run rampant. So this would be them kind of tipping the scales more towards inflation. And, you know, the article that I wrote was called Inflation, Recession, or Both. And it was talking about what is that balance going to be like? Where's the Fed going to arrive? Are they going to allow inflation to run a little bit more rampant so that we don't, you know, so it doesn't appear that we have a recession? Or are we going to, are they going to bring us you know, further and deeper into recession in order to try and quell inflation a little bit more. And so the language we've seen out of the Fed over the last week still appears to be that they, you know, want to continue to fight inflation. They're still posturing as though the fight against inflation is the number one priority. I don't know what happens after the next print. I don't know what happens if the market crashes another 20, 30, 40% from here. I don't know where the Fed put is. I don't know what point it is, you know, where Powell just pisses himself and says, I can't take this anymore. I can't take the political pressure. I can't take the idea. You know, even if I have to let inflation take hold, I can't take the idea of turning on CNBC one more morning and seeing the S&P down, you know? So maybe at some point he says, we'll just let stocks go up in nominal terms just to kind of relieve this pressure because the politicians, they don't get it. You know, that they don't understand. They, they would probably like somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who is talking a lot of shit about Powell, she would probably rather see the stock market go up than the inflation number come down because to her, the stock market equals the economy, which of course isn't true, but it's the appearance that things are going well when they're not. So, you know, it's about going forward here and what balance the Fed wants to strike. I forget your original question, to be honest with you. <laughs> That's okay. You're known for these rants that kind of encompass everything. And there's so many of these different ideas that need to be tied in. Well, what the hell was your original question, though? Honestly, I can't even remember because I went oh, down good. further, okay. well, further well, in my notes here. Then I don't feel bad. <laughs> Well, you know, oh, you were asking you were asking about the market. You were asking about why the market was rallying mm -hmm. after that 75 basis point hike. So that's why I think the market is rallying. But I think, you know, again, to go back to the point we just made, 
you know, don't be caught off guard if the credit markets just suddenly seize up one morning when we wake up when nobody's expecting it. Because I think, you know, the train wreck that has already happened is catching up to us now. We just need we're just waiting for it to show up in the market. So don't don't be fooled in thinking that this little pop up in the market here based on this. I guess you would call it optimistic narrative wherein inflation still runs bananas. Don't be fooled into thinking that everything's fine because it isn't. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, Chris, the thing that I wanted to kind of move on and, and talk about a little bit is, you know, obviously you and I are both fans of precious metals. That's why most of our listeners are here, right? So, you know, I've been getting some emails or texts and messages here from listeners that have been asking if I have lost faith in the precious metals, considering the price action over the last couple of months here. So how would you answer that question? I would answer it simply, which is how could you have possibly lost faith in precious metals when you have China and Russia who have banded together and basically said, we're going to defect from the entire global economy as we know it. And what we're going to fall back on are our gold reserves. And this is why I've long held that these countries are going to reinstitute some type of gold standard. They're going to back their currency with gold, because if they do something like that, they are just, you know, they're raising the bar in a way that I'm not sure the West, that the EU, uh, that the Fed can uh, can react to properly. I mean, if you're China and you want to go out and become a global economic superpower and you have all the productive capacity in the world and you're already in this giant period of volatility now. Well, what the hell else is it to just go take Taiwan and say we're back in the digital yuan with with gold and a story and mm-hmm. everybody else like Russia did. You know, we're going to continue to produce oil. We'll take rubles and everybody else can fucking sort it out. The rest of you, you know, the rest of the global economy can sort it out. But here's what we're doing. We've got this gold to fall back on. We've got these commodities to fall back on. We're not pulling out of the war. You can kick us out of Swift. You can take our McDonald's. We'll fucking build our own from the ground up, you know. <laughs> with like what they're doing, you know, they're coming up with the Russian state run Starbucks and, and McDonald's replacements. And I don't think China might be far behind. And what is allowing them to do that? What's giving them the confidence to be able to do that? And it is this stockpile of gold that they have been putting together. You know, Tom, we've talked about it before, but I, it is estimated that China has vastly underreported its gold reserves. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I talk about this with Andy Sheckman all the time which is, you know, what if China comes out tomorrow and they say, hey, we actually have 10 times more gold than than we ever let on. And by the way, we're backing our currency with it. You know, have a nice fucking day. That is what would enable them to do that. So from, you know, the ownership of gold, which everybody knows a finite resource, it's been money for thousands of years. It's used in industry. It's got, you know, great productive use. It's all these wonderful properties of gold that have given it 5,000 years of cred, if you will, as a reserve currency. And then really at the end of the day, as the one thing that you want to have, if you want to win the economic game underneath it all, the reason that central banks hold it in reserve. So to anybody that says that this $200 plunge in the price of gold here off highs, or you know, three or 400 off highs here, is a reason to bail out on the metal, I think is insane. I think it's absolutely crazy. And listen, I think 
that if China does that and Russia does that, either of these countries come out and back their currency one way or the other, you know, look, Russia's accepting gold for its oil. That's not quite far off from backing mm-hmm. its currency with gold. That's pretty close because in essence, you know, they have a petrol currency. Oil is their basically their mainstay, their big flagship national commodity, right? It would be like if China started accepting gold for party favors, you know, like <laughs> that's their big, that's the extent of their productive capacity. Of course, I'm being hyperbolic, but the point is <laughs> that like, that's not far off from backing the currency with gold. So anybody that isn't, paying attention to this and thinks that, ah, you know, everybody's just kind of giving up on gold here is crazy. And I think that if either of those countries come out and announce that they're going to back this new global reserve currency with gold, or they're going to back the uh, digital yuan, China's digital currency with gold, we're going to see a rush to buy gold that I'm not sure historically we've ever seen before. And I also think that If in the U.S. the Fed pivots, that optimistic case that we're talking about, and I wrote about this the other day, I just said in that same article talking about, hey, is is this 9.1% print and actually, you know, a reason to go out and buy stocks? I laid out the case that I just laid out to your listeners. But on top of it, I said, gold's going to go at the same time. Because when the Fed decides to switch back to an easy money, you know, gold has fallen here over the last six months, three months under the guise that the Fed has this inflation thing under control, Tom, you know, Mm -hmm. the dollar's up, gold's down, rates are going up. We're in control. It's time to play hardball. You know, we got it. Everybody calm down, whatever. Hey, if they pivot, gold's going through 2,500 and it's going through 2,500. I think, you know, from current levels, probably in two weeks, three weeks time. I think if the Fed really does pivot, and goes the course of letting inflation run a little bit further. And, you know, we get that inflation in the stock market, which would take place. You get that big relief rally in in nominal terms. Gold is going to go. Gold is going to go with it. And if you look at a non-inflation adjusted, non-log scale chart of gold over the last 30 years, like I was doing yesterday, all you see is this big giant cup and handle. And Mm -hmm. you think about like, all right, well, what's the next catalyst going to be? Is it going to be these countries returning back to the gold standard or is it going to be the Fed pivoting? But I think either one of those is going to send gold through the fucking stratosphere. And I think that miners now, look, miners have been under a little bit of pressure, not only from the falling price of gold, but also due to the increase in uh, fixed costs or variable costs, rather, because of commodity prices going up. Right? Everything costs a little bit more. A lot of the oils, especially and- diesel fuel. Yeah, exactly. The diesel fuel used in mining, those things have gone up. But if, if they continue to steady and the price of gold moves higher, the leverage that these miners are going to get is going to be immense gold miners and silver miners. You know, I own the GDX. I own SIL, the silver miners. I think I bought a little bit more today. You know, I've been adding. I just think that it's wool being pulled over people's eyes. It's the false appearance that the Fed has everything under control. I mean, that's what's got the dollar so strong right now. That's not going to last. 
You know, we're not going to be able to keep up this charade. We're going to have this credit crisis. We're going to have a a crisis wherein uh, politicians put more pressure on the Fed to ease. It's going to happen. And that's when you're going to see gold shoot sparks out of its ass and fly through 2000 and never come back again. You know, and, and look, don't take my word for it because. I'm not giving financial advice, but go back and listen to Palisades Gold Radio. Listen to the last 10, 20, 30 interviews that you've done. I listen to all of them. Mm-hmm. You know, they're my favorite podcast to listen to when I run. And, you know, people seem to understand this, except, you know, whoever's, and, you know, who the fuck knows where the paper price of gold is coming from, where the spot price of gold is coming from. I mean, you want to start to pick the brain of somebody like Andy Sheckman again, you know, he's going to tell you all this crazy shit about how you know there's these massive short positions on comex and you know they've got one percent of the gold that they would need to cover all the positions that are outstanding there's a lot of fucky stuff going on with the paper price of gold and silver where is the true price to me i have trouble believing that it's 1700 now i think it should be probably 2000 2500 3000 now but given one of those two events going forward I think that we're going to see some serious shit. And so I am using this as an opportunity to buy gold, to add miners. That's what I've been doing. I'm looking for Andy Sheckman emailed me today and I can't find the email, but I hadn't heard from him in a while. And he basically just said, you know, that he appreciated that I was talking about the de-dollarization, the China and Russia de-dollarization, that he agreed with a lot of what I was saying. And I wanted to read his thoughts here, but I can't find the email, but he would be a great guy to also have on again soon, because I think he can shed light on the gold and silver market in a way that I can't given his expertise. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and, you know, there's been a lot of people that talk about, well, gold isn't keeping up with inflation, right? And I think that more so in the short term, it is more protection against these crazy financial conditions and failures in the system rather than just being an inflation hedge. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. And I think it's really tough to try to gauge where gold is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's almost a case for owning miners instead of owning paper gold, like the GLD or something. I'd rather own the GDX. I'd rather own gold mining companies because they're cash producing companies and they pay dividends and they generate free cash. Mm -hmm. The paper gold contracts, I mean, they can just cancel them. To the best of my understanding, they can just take you out of those trades and cancel them. And mm-hmm. I think if the the bull case that many gold investors think about, wherein you get this big seismic shift on a global scale takes place, you're wanna you're gonna wanna be holding physical because things are gonna get distorted and out of whack and trades are gonna get busted. And there's probably gonna be some real fucky periods of odd price movement. You know, you don't get a three, four, five, six hundred $600 move higher in the price of gold over a week or two without some things blowing up. Somebody's blowing up somewhere. I don't know where it is, but you know, uh, the, the people that are messing around with uh, paper gold are likely to get carried out of trades. The people that are messing around with leverage on gold and silver, you know, to the short side are going to get carried out. And then you'll see like what we're seeing in crypto now, which is all these over-levered companies that have overextended themselves, unable to bear the brunt of a price movement in the wrong direction. So you just want to own physical gold and physical silver after that, because it's going to take a while for the smoke to clear. And then the next discussion you have to have is whether or not countries are going to nationalize 
minors. And that I think will be even further down the road, because if, if you believe in this case that gold and silver are eventually going to back the currency again, which I think is a, a real case that I think has to happen. I think it really does have to happen. The couple iterations down from that, you have to start thinking about the game theory of, you know, the governments are going to want to nationalize the miners because they're going to say it's in the best interest of their respective countries, because that's, you know, they're doing it to protect the country's currency. And so, you know, when you get your four, five, six X in the gold miners, which I think is definitely possible, your four, five, six X in the silver miners, which I think could also happen down the road. I think there will be a point where you're going to have to start to think about, you know, all right, well, I got to take this off and think about, you know, just change my exposure around, maybe go to physical if you can, you know, say, hey, we're going to take your physical, but, you know, they can't take where they don't know where it's buried, you know, and they can't take what they don't know that you don't have. Mm-hmm. And so that's catastrophic post-apocalyptic scenarios down the road. But I think we're closer to that one than we've, than we've been Tom, over the last 20, 30 years. I got to tell you. Yeah. And that's fair. And unfortunately it's, there's all these different ideas that we have to consider and, it's not a bad thing to talk about them and to, you know, put some effort into trying to figure out how to get around them and or figure out contingency plans for those types of scenarios. But, you know, Chris, you touched on the idea of the crypto crash that we've seen here, and, and you and I spoke about it a little bit last time. And one thing you've, you've talked a lot about on your show was maybe we'll, we'll be kind and say the interesting ideas of Alex Mashinsky and how he sees gold as being a yieldless asset and yet crypto somehow being able to generate a yield. So now that we've seen Celsius file for bankruptcy, do you think there are more risks for the crypto space at this time that are right at the doorstep? Or do you think that for the time being, we're out of the woods? I'm glad you asked, right? Because we talked about this the last time that we talked a little bit. And I actually went back to the interview And I tried to listen to what I was saying because I was, you know, you have to pardon my ego, but I was putting together a little greatest hits compilation of some of the things I had said about Celsius over the last six months, Mm -hmm. because, you know, like a couple other people like Peter Schiff has said, they, you know, they were taking enormous risk. And what I said specifically on your program was that until a guy like Mashinsky blows up, I don't think that crypto is even worth looking at. I think there's this massive deleveraging that still needs to happen uh, in crypto. And that was the last thing that we talked about on our last interview. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. the audio quality was so bad that I didn't even want to take that clip and replay it, even though I was right. You know, and that should tell you something about how shitty the audio quality was because I was so stoked to be like, Oh yeah, I'm going to go back and take this 10 second clip and I'm going to put it on a loop and I'm going to listen to it for the rest of my life and pat myself <laughs> on the back. I'm what a genius I am. And I went back and listened to it. And I was like, Oh man, I'm like, this sounds so terrible. I'm such an ass for like trying to take that call while I was standing at Ventnor fishing pier, getting ready to go surfing. It was just selfish. By the way, I want to apologize for that again. I have a lot of respect for your program. and I really shouldn't have done that. Having said that to the content, you know, look, it was clear that Alex Mashinsky was taking inordinate risks that Celsius and all these companies that are doing, you know, uh, lending, crypto lending, were taking enormous risks. You don't need to know anything about anything mm-hmm. other than 
7, 10, 12, 15% yields don't just fall out of the sky. You know, junk bonds now don't even yield 5%. I mean, that's like the state of the bond market right now, right? The riskiest corporate paper out there, I think yields like 6%. So the fact that this bonehead was out there telling people that they can generate a yield from crypto was not only disingenuous, but, you know, kind of nefarious in the sense that there are a lot of people out there that don't really understand where yield comes from and that they believed him when he said that, you know, Bitcoin generates a yield. Another wonderful quote from this guy was gold has no value. That was a quote that he made during his Kitco mm-hmm. interview with Peter Schiff. He said, gold has no value, Peter. He said, uh, just because we use it in industry doesn't mean it has any value. And I just listened to that one line, like, he just, you know, first off, he just proved himself wrong in one line. But like, mm-hmm. who says something like that? Who says who says gold has no value? What a dangerous, thoughtless, dumbass thing to say. So was I surprised when Celsius went bankrupt? No, I wasn't. You know, I hate to say it. I wish there was more I could have done to try to get people out of Celsius. That hopefully, you know, people get some kind of recovery. But I think it's a good, you know, since then there's been other blowups, right? You've seen some of these other firms doing the same type of lending that have also blown up. I still think there's more deleveraging that has to take place. I think, as I said to you, there are, I think, let's just say Bitcoin survives for the long term. And I'm a skeptic on crypto. I'd rather, I'd rather own gold. But let's just say that Bitcoin survives for the long term. And let's say there's institutional money on the sideline waiting to buy Bitcoin. Are they nibbling now? Maybe. Maybe they're nibbling a little bit. We've had a little bit of a, uh, a crypto uh, you know, nuclear holocaust here, as I called it on the last <laughs> podcast. But I still think there's there would be more money waiting for two other inevitabilities to occur. One is Michael Saylor. I think the powers that be, the market gods that be, when they know that you're all in and you're levered on something, the market gods have a way of just getting you to that point where the stop loss is and getting you out of the position. Don't, don't, I don't know how to explain it. Maybe it's just instinct from years of trading. Maybe it's from conversations I've had with market makers on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange where I say, hey, you can see people stop losses and then just hit those and take those out, right? And they go, oh yeah, we fucking do it all the time. You know, <laughs> maybe it's that, but it just feels like Sailor has to get carried out. I think, and it still feels like this stable coin circus that's been going on here with Tether, you know, who's been avoiding producing an audit for their stable coin. They've produced these attestations and they still claim that every, you know, every Tether is backed by the equivalent of one US dollar's worth of investments. And you have this whole lot of people, it's pretty much widely accepted that everybody is skeptical as to whether or not that's true. I think until we get some truth there, and until this guy, Sailor, you know, does the interview where he's apologizing for the tattoo on CNBC or he's sweating or he's putting out the blog post saying, you know, please bear with us. We're doing everything we can to recover customer assets while we file Chapter 11 or <laughs> whatever Celsius did. We may not have hit the bottom in crypto, but, you know, I'm not surprised. I think that, you know, if there's a case for crypto, it's one where Bitcoin survives because it's really it's the it's the bottom foundational layer of the whole universe and all of these derivatives shit coins and altcoins and 
toxic lending companies and all these things all get carried out. You know, uh, maybe Bitcoin survives, but I think we still haven't seen real capitulation. This is still like a pretty orderly sell-off in mm -hmm. crypto. Yet a lot of people, I think, that were forced out. A lot of these, you know, three arrows capitals and all their counterparties and all the Celsius counterparties. You had a lot of people that had to deleverage. And now you got this guy Bankman Fried in there bailing people out. And it's like, all right, you know, I had lunch with a well-known hedge fund manager. I don't know if he would want me to mention his name, so I'm not going to, a month or two ago, who just said to me, just very casually, and how do we know this Bankman Fried guy is solvent? You know, I said, eh, it's a really good point. You know, like, <laughs> how do we know? He probably is, but maybe he isn't. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's still excess. There's still malinvestment that needs to come out of crypto. But, you know, are we are we near a, a near-term bottom? I, I really don't know. You know, mm -hmm. how do you gauge that on something that trades only on technical analysis and doesn't have a fundamental use case? It's difficult for me to try to price. Is it cheap at 20,000? Is it cheap at 10,000? Well, who knows? Is it cheap at 30,000? The people that are bullish will say, yeah, it's cheap at any price under a trillion, billion, zillion dollars because <laughs> it's going to be the future global reserve currency. Well, I'm a little bit skeptical of that, you know. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Chris, when you're talking about solvency, you did a recent episode with a lawyer chatting about the nuances of the Twitter deal and Elon Musk. So can you give us a little bit of an overview of the issues surrounding the deal and the considerations that I believe it was the Delaware state law will add? You don't have to be a lawyer to understand this case. The case generally revolves around the fact that, you know, Musk said he wanted to buy Twitter and that he wanted to waive his due diligence and he wanted to just ram this deal through and that it was all jokes and laughs and, you know, talking shit and all this stuff over the last month or two while Twitter's price whipsawed back and forth and all these snowflakes in Silicon Valley working at the company were wondering, you know, whether or not with Elon Musk at the helm, whether or not they would be uh, addressed by their correct pronouns in years to come. Uh, it was all of that happening very quickly. And then all of a sudden him saying, never mind, I want out, you know, after a definitive agreement has been put into place, wherein he waived his, you know, right to due diligence. And, you know, now he's nitpicking saying, well, you know, the company said this, this and this about about fake accounts and spam accounts and bots. When really one of the reasons he said up front that he wanted to buy the company was to rid it of spam and bots. So now he takes this case, the two of them take this case to Delaware Chancery Court. And the point of the podcast was to try to get a pulse, try to get a temperature on whether or not the Delaware Chancery Court was going to uh, cater to Elon Musk, as courts have done in the past. I mean, the guy's pretty much gotten away with every dumbass thing he's done. Calling Vern Ensworth a pedo. He got away with that. He won that case. You know, bailing out his cousin's bankrupt Solar City. Well, he got away with that, too. You know, faking an $80 billion buyout for Tesla. He got away with that. Lying about the solar roof tiles. He got, a, got away with that. Lying about the battery swap program. He got away with that. He's been lying about full self-driving and autonomy for six, seven years nonstop. He's gotten away with that. So the, the question was generally, you know, are we going to, can we put a pulse on and, and handicap whether or not he's going to get away with this pulling out of the Twitter deal when anybody can see clearly he really threw down and said, I, I want to buy Twitter come hell mm -hmm. or high water. I'm in, I don't care about due diligence. You know, it's like somebody coming in and buying a house and, Waving the waving the inspection and coming in ten thousand dollars above asking price and saying you know just ram it through we just got to get it through 
And the point of talking to Montana skeptic, who is who I was speaking to, who happens to have a, a JD from a little community college called Yale. I don't know if you've ever heard of it and was a practicing trial attorney for several decades. The point of talking to him was, you know, trying to handicap whether the Delaware Chancery Court would put up with Elon Musk's bullshit or not. And from the looks of things, at least from this first filing that Musk's legal team had put forth, which was to request that the trial take place in February or March of next year, instead of October of this year, which is what Twitter wants. Twitter's like, look, this is this is a done deal. Let's we can schedule this for a five day trial. You know, Twitter's like, we can get this over with. We could take this to fucking Judge Judy. She'll wrap this up in a half hour. You know, (laughs) so that's Twitter's kind of stance on it because they have the leverage. They're in the right. And at least from this first round of motions, it looks as though the Delaware Chancery Court may not be as amused with Elon Musk as other people have been in the past. And then the question becomes, is he going to have to buy Twitter? And if so, at what price? And what does that mean for his Tesla holdings? You know, and where is he going to get the Skrilla to put the deal together? And are his financial backers still with him? And so the idea of that podcast was trying to handicap the outcome. If I had to guess an outcome today, I would say that he is going to be forced to buy the company or remunerate Twitter to the tune of many, many, many billions of dollars, not not just this $1 billion breakup fee, maybe $10, $15 billion if he wants to back out. But I think more than likely what will happen is he will settle with Twitter to buy the company at a slightly lower price, you know, one that is still material for him. Mm-hmm. One that I think could put him under some financial duress uh, and one that gets the deal done for Twitter and, and you know, makes their shareholders whole. Mm-hmm. So, Chris, where do you see any opportunity in these markets? Are you seeing this as a relief rally or are you just going back in short arc and Tesla here? Well, I'll give you a little bit of, you know, I sent out a note to my paid subscribers on my blog that I'll just put out there now. Cause really, you know, it was timely when I sent it out, but I'll just tell you a little bit about it now. And you know, my blog is called fringe finance. I write a lot of public articles, but when I talk mm-hmm. about the markets and, and things like that, I do only send them to my paid subscribers. And this is generally the very unqualified musings and brain farts that I come up with when I'm, you know, out for a jog in the morning or whatever. But I was writing about this Pelosi going to Taiwan and how I think that is escalating tensions between the U.S. and China. And, you know, what do I think that means for markets? So, look, I already talked about why I like gold and miners. I think that there is a two pronged kind of case for them. If China and Russia start to back the currency with gold, if we get more geopolitical unrest, if the Fed pivots all bullish for gold, I like them and I like the miners from there. I would rather be short Tesla than ARK, A-R-K-K, which is, you know, I was short ARK for the last however long, six months, eight months since I've been writing about it. I think Tesla is disproportionately inaccurately priced compared to everything else in that flagship fund. Not saying that there's any more dog shit in there because there is. But I also think that, you know, when you look at cash generative companies like Zoom and you look at these companies like Roku and Teladoc that have just gotten federally pounded over the last six months, including Roku, which just beefed their earnings like two days ago. I mean, that stock used to be at 300. It's trading at 60 now. It's probably still overvalued. But the point is that, you know, the only company that hasn't gotten brutalized out of that whole basket of companies has been Tesla. Mm -hmm. And I've written about that over the last six months, how that has kind of 
you know, that's been the one string that the ARC fund has held up by. And that if Tesla goes, ARKK is, is going to go with it because that's really, that's the one thing that they've kind of hung their hat on here. So I'd rather just be short Tesla. I think Tesla is a car company and I think it's priced like a tech company. I think there's a case for Tesla re-rating lower 70%, you know, in a bull market based on nothing. You know, I just think it's egregiously overvalued as it stands. Then you got all this other liability. You have the NHTSA investigation outstanding where they're looking into autopilot. I mean, God help that company if the NHTSA comes out and says that they have to refund people's, you know, full self-driving deposits or that they can't do autonomous driving. I mean, that could be disastrous. You have mm-hmm. an ungodly amount of competition that's come online for them that wasn't there over the last two, three years. And the company's still trading at this insane tech growth multiple when it should really be trading at, you know, eight or 10 times earnings like General Motors is, you know, and I'm not sure that they can consistently generate cash either. They're generating a lot of cash from selling these Zev credits and things like that. So I think it may not be as sustainable business as people think it is. And I think on top of that, it's being priced ridiculously. So I'd rather be short Tesla than short the ARC basket. Now there's other individual names that I like. So in my note to subscribers, I wrote about cybersecurity, which is something that, you know, we saw this morning before Pelosi landed in Taiwan that the Taiwanese presidential website had been hacked. And one of the points that I started to make about China a couple months ago on my blog was that the next war, this big conflict that we're in now with China and Russia, a lot of this is going to be fought online. We've already seen it, right? We've seen Russia go after Ukraine's infrastructure and hack their websites and bring down a lot of their cybersecurity before even sending one tank over the line. I mean, if you remember, those were the reports coming Mm -hmm. out of Kiev like two, three months ago that, you know, the Ukrainian internet went down. That's why Zelensky was begging Starlink to put those satellites in the air because they didn't have any internet access. That's a big deal. So I think, uh, you know, this World War III scenario, by the way, I love aerospace and defense also too, I wrote about. That's why I own, you know, companies like Lockheed Martin and the ITA ETF. I think aerospace and defense are good value stocks relative to the rest of the market that I think could be timely right now, given this conflict globally that doesn't look like it's going to resolve. It doesn't look like the US, China and Russia are going to be making peace anytime soon. It looks like the start of a new Cold War. And, you know, Cold War now will be different than a Cold War in the 70s because we have the internet now. And so that leads me to cybersecurity. And that's why I own the IHAK, I-H-A-K ETF. And it's also why I own companies like Palo Alto Networks, which is one of my favorites, P-A-N-W. I think that a lot of cybersecurity companies could even wind up becoming wholly owned subsidiaries of the Department of Defense at some point. Maybe the Department of Defense doesn't buy them, but, you know, like Boeing, like Lockheed Martin, you know, they put their campuses right next to where the Department of Defense is and the Treasury will never let them go bankrupt because, in essence, they're producing everything that the Department of Defense needs. And Mm -hmm. I think that's going to happen with a lot of cybersecurity names. We've already seen consolidation in cybersecurity a couple of cybersecurity names over the last few months have been acquired. And I think more will likely be scooped up and acquired. So I think if you're looking for a growth sector and you want to invest in tech now, and this is not financial advice, I'm saying you is in the royal you is in me, not you. Don't listen to what I'm doing. I live in a 400 square foot studio apartment. You don't want to end up like me. But I'm saying if you're looking for an area where you can invest in tech and you can invest in growth, 
I think cybersecurity makes more sense than going out and buying something like Netflix right now or Roku, you know, not to say that they won't go up. But if you're talking about big, secular, you know, massive tailwinds, I feel like, you know, defense and cybersecurity will be big ones, you know, and then I also liked just select names here and there that I like, you know, Lululemon. Okay. It's a, it's a retailer, you know, it's a target. It's a retailer. I write about why I like those names and, and I write about a bunch of other kind of individual names that I own personally and my reasoning for owning them, which I guarantee you is more than just saying, Hey, you know, the feds a rising tide lifting all boats. I have usually very equity specific asymmetric reasoning for owning individual equities that I think can perform even when the market moves lower. But right now, look, if I had to, you know, if I had to pick sectors other than metals and commodities, and I have to look back on this interview in 20 years and hope that I got something right, I think cybersecurity right now is one that's, it gets really overlooked. You know, I wrote about it when the conflict started, just basically writing that, you know, this is a wartime sector that people don't even realize is a wartime sector. When the whole thing with Russia and Ukraine started, you know, Lockheed and Northrop Guthrie, whatever the fuck their name is, I feel like Joey Diaz. <laughs> Northrop Guthrie, Kalabib, it's going to be Kalabib, needs to fight that Overeem. All these defense names all skyrocketed. And the cybersecurity names, they didn't even catch a bid. And I was like, wow, people don't really realize that these are wartime stocks yet. And that was an article that I wrote about. And I'm kind of sticking by that right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting point about them being wartime stocks that wouldn't traditionally be considered right. such, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, I think a Cold War now looks very different than mm -hmm. it did in the 70s. And it's not just cybersecurity, Tom. It's not just because it's being fought online, but look at how China and Russia are fighting this now. If you think that they're postured up to go to war with the West, let's just say that that's their internal stance. And I don't know if it is. Maybe they want to make nice tomorrow. But assuming that they're playing the long game and they've decided at some point they want to unseat the U.S. as the dominant global and you know military and economic superpower. Well, it would take more than just military might. It would, you know, in essence, strategically, it would probably take way more economically than it would militarily because mm -hmm. if our economy collapses well there goes our you know productive capacity to even produce the things that we would need militarily right so it all starts with infrastructure and technology and information technology and so that's the kind of stuff you have to think about when you breeze through the news and on page 22 there's an article about oh so and so you know Sergeant Wang in the New York Police Department turned out to be a Chinese spy. And by the way, you know, it's going to be 81 and sunny today and blah, 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 blah. People just breeze by those stories. It's like, eh, maybe something's going on under the surface here. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if that's their position, if that's how they're posturing, this next Cold War, if there is one, is going to be fought through technology and it's going to be fought through infrastructure. And, and that's why, you know, I, really like those cybersecurity names. The more I'm talking about it now, just talking to you, the more I'm, I'm thinking to myself, shit, yeah, I should should probably buy a little bit more. I probably should get some more exposure to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting point that you brought up, Chris. Um, I think we've covered the gamut there. Is there anything else that you want to mention before we wrap up here? I don't think so. 
But because I'm imagining that we're going to take a break for a few months before we speak again, I did want to do this one today with you because I, I really did feel terrible about how the last one turned out. And I wanted to, there's a lot of stuff to update on. Yeah, I think we're pretty much good, man. If you take one thing from it, don't be shocked if the credit market sees up. We wake up one morning and these 225 basis points catch up to us because I think this idea, oh, everything's fine. Even the market rallied today after Pelosi landed in Taiwan. Oh, everything's OK. She landed. They didn't shoot down her jet. Bullish. You know, it's like, <laughs> all right, let's see how it pans out here over the next couple of months. All right. I wouldn't be in there buying stocks on that. But no, I just, I want to thank you. I want to thank you readers. I want to apologize to both of you again for the last one that we did. And I'm glad we were able to talk again. I love your show. I love your listeners. They come over, they comment on my blog. They send me messages. They're fucking smart. They're informed. They're great to hear from. And that's it. I can't thank you enough. Well, thank you too, Chris. And I appreciate you adding to the conversation. You know, it is good to have a conversation with a little bit more color and maybe language than we're used to at Palisades Gold Radio. But, you know, that's the whole point of doing this show is to be able to get different opinions and see the market from different perspectives. And, you know, listening to your podcast for a long time too, I appreciate the things that you bring up and the topics that you cover over there too, Chris. And yeah, well, I'm, I'm, you know what? It's so nice that you don't edit what I say. And that's, you know, why I talked to you today about, can I release this under my own podcast? too, you know, after Palisades released it, because, you know, th my listeners are going to hear the exact same thing that your listeners are going to hear. And at the end of the day, whether you, you know, I know there's some of your listeners don't like the language I use, whatever, but at the end of the day, man, that's what it's all about is you're out there, you're throwing out the dragnet and you're bringing in all these different opinions. And that's why I love listening to your show. Cause you don't edit people and you let them say what they got to say, even if it's counterintuitive to gold at the time. I've heard people on your podcast come on and make the case that it's not the right time for gold. Well, and that's, I, I go out of my way to try and find those people simply because I want to see maybe we're wrong. Maybe we've missed mm -hmm. something. And even when I do typically try to find somebody that is bearish on gold, it seems to be more so for the short term and not so much for the longer term. You know, they're, right. they're worried about trying to catch a bottom rather than, thinking about it in the longer term protection wise that gold seems to offer. And if you're an investor and your goal as a human being is to either protect or preserve your wealth and or preserve the financial security and physical security of the people that you love, right? If that's what your goal is in life, mm -hmm. you don't really care if somebody isn't in your echo chamber. What you want is you want everybody to lay out the facts as objectively as possible on the table. And then you want to kind of take those and be able to make what you determine to be the right decisions based on that. So the more objective opinion you get, whether it fits your current narrative or not, you know, the better, because if your end goal is like what mine is, which is to just stay informed Mm -hmm. And to just maybe try to, you know, get people thinking a little bit differently and maybe look at the other side of the coin, even if I'm not even investing that way, that's what you need. You have to have the discourse, you know, and in an age where it's all about censorship and it's all about 
you know, a couple of people in San Francisco determining that a bunch of other people are, you know, spreading disinformation because they have different opinions and people being banned off social media and all this shit. You know, that's all that's all we can hope for, man. And that's you know, that's what gives your program integrity. And, and that's what's above all what's really important. I would take integrity and a good faith, you know, coming from a position of good faith over, you know, somebody that's just going to tell me what I want to hear any day of the week. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Chris. And, you know, the idea of not being censored and being able to have access, you know, the internet has given us access to more opinion and information than we've ever had before. Right. Yeah, it might take some time to filter through that. And I think as the old saying goes, sunlight is the best disinfectant. You know, there are going to be bullshit opinions that are going to be expressed from time to time. And the more objective we can be, you know, just figuring out our own opinions based on many different data points is the whole goal of this show. And I think my viewpoint in general, because there's so many things that we can look back on over the last two years that have come out to be blatant lies. And yet, despite exactly, despite best efforts and censorship, there's a lot of people that have picked up on that. And I think that that's important. And there's not ever been a time in my mind that I am aware of where the blatant disinformation campaign that we have seen has been so managed in the West. And I don't think there's a lot of people that are aware of the extent to which that information is being filtered. Yeah. And when you have the media so eager to carry water for whatever the official narrative is, whether it's wrong or it's right, just out there carrying water, you know, Rachel Maddow saying, if you take the vaccine, there's no way you're going to get COVID, right? Just shit like that. Mm -hmm. Like just lies, just this bill that they're trying to fucking put through now, Tom is called the inflation reduction act. And it's got like $430 billion in new spending. in. I mean, that's what we're up against. And we're up against a media machine that will happily with a smile and makeup on tell you that, you know, it's called the inflation reduction act. So that's what it's going to do. It's going to reduce inflation when, you know, it's just more government spending. Mm -hmm. So that's why having a counter narrative is so important. Even if it turns out, even if the vaccine is safe and it turns out that, you know, it's doing way more good than harm, you still have to be able to hear the other side of the story. You Mm -hmm. still have to, you know, when you did that interview with the guy from Russia, Peter, I think his name was Mm -hmm. like three months back, four or five months back. Right right after Luke. Yeah. Yeah. When the Russia Ukraine conflict started And I remember, hey, I was up by Lake Ontario. I was on vacation. I went for a run that morning. Okay. I was running for about an hour and a half. I listened to that entire interview. I turned it on the second I left and I listened to the whole thing without stopping. And when I got back from that run, I immediately started to draft an article about, hey, like, here's what the other side of this whole anti-Russia, pro-Ukraine argument looks like. Not because I was you know, pro-Russia and anti-Ukraine, but because I heard perspective from that guy that I had never heard. I, you know, I hadn't heard of it. Sure as hell didn't hear it from the media, you know, but just to hear that guy say, oh, here's why we did it. And, you know, most people here support Putin and, you know, this, that, and the other, and to talk about, you know, financially, what the impact has been on him, somebody in Russia, what, what do these sanctions do to the average citizen in Russia? 
that kind of information is crucial. And like it rounds out what for me at the time was a one-sided picture. And so that kind of stuff is so important. And even if it's, look, even if, if the hand of God comes down tomorrow and objectively says that, you know, Russia is doing the wrong thing and Ukraine is doing the right thing, that's fine. But it still doesn't mean that we shouldn't hear from the other side of the argument. And, and that's what's so important. And I just, I thought that interview was just fantastic. And it just, it, it really did. It changed how I thought, you know, it changed the balance of how I thought about the entire conflict from day one. And so I, that's, that's what makes you a great resource, man. Well, I appreciate that, Chris. And it really did that for me too. And, you know, I, I think the quote unquote truth is difficult to find. That being said, we need to be able to hold two very different ideas in our heads at the same time right. and evaluate them. And sometimes we need time to figure out you know, what the actual truth is or what ends up being right. And just because you've had one side reported on ad nauseum doesn't make that the objective truth, right? Yeah. And often too, like when you talk about the situation with the global reserve currency and China and Russia allying themselves with each other. And then this last decade of them de-dollarizing before this happening, you know, at some point you kind of have to let the breadcrumbs of objective evidence and facts lead you to a conclusion. And when that conclusion stands at odds with the narrative being pushed by the machine, you know, it makes it that much harder. You need that much more constitution, meaning personal kind of wherewithal to, to kind of arrive at those points. But oftentimes, you know, Occam's razor applies. And if you go with the simplest solution and the most likely solution based on the objective evidence, you're going to kind of, you know, you're going to kind of wind up figuring out who benefits and what their intentions are a lot quicker than, you know, because look, if you let the media or the government try to figure it out, whether it's the right wing or the left wing, it doesn't even matter. There's going to be a lot of wasted time. There's going to be a lot of wasted resources. You're going to arrive at a lot of wrong conclusions before you ever, if ever, get to the right one. I mean, who knows how we're going to look back on something like the pandemic 20 years from now? Mm -hmm. um, who knows? I mean, we may look at it like we did a great job dealing with it, or we may look at it like this was one of the biggest, you know, fuck ups in terms of how we dealt with something ever in human history, or it could land anywhere in between, you know, but the, the point is, if you want to be a good investor, if you want to do what's right for your, for your family, if you want to protect your personal security, your personal wealth, if you want to be able to contribute to your community, if you want to, you know, be a person of, uh, be a person that, that helps those around you, you know, arriving at those types of conclusions ahead of everybody else becomes a great resource. And you can only do that when you have access to the data, right? It was like mm -hmm. coming into COVID. So many people wrote me, oh, you were one of the only people that say, you know, COVID was going to be a big deal before it became a big deal. And what am I? Am I some fucking huge brained MIT game theorist? No, like I drink beer and whiskey all the time. You know, <laughs> I'm the guy that 20 years ago was smashing beer cans on my head. All right. 20 minutes ago, maybe. But, but the point is, you know, I just. I just kept looking at it every day. Oh, the case numbers are going up. Oh, it's the holidays. People are flying all over the world. You know, mm -hmm. you don't need to be a fucking profiler to put two and two together there. And so that's why I've just always been such an advocate for like, get all the data on the table and then just trust your instincts. You mm -hmm. know, 
trust yourself. You're, you're, you're smarter than 95% of the people out there. Everybody is there are people that listen to a podcast like this, you know, and that's why when we talk about the fed earlier and the, and the, the China spy at the fed, that's why I said, there's actually a case for them just being incompetent and saying, you know, ah, it's no big deal. It's like with the fed, people say, Oh, the fed's so nefarious, you know, widening the inequality gap and this, that, and the other. I said, yeah, but maybe they think they're doing the right thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and to kind of tie some of that up with a bow too, Chris, I think that skill is something that you have to develop over time. It's not, not everybody has the ability to just analyze abstract pieces of information from all over the world and put it all together, right? It's not an easy thing to do. Number one, number two, it takes time to develop that skill. And once you do, I think that, as you say, that makes you an asset to your community and, and to those around you that begins to make people in some ways trust you, or at least listen to you when you're the one sounding the alarm about, yeah, there's some weird virus in China that that's probably going to be a big deal here. I, I remember I was looking through my phone a couple of days ago and I found screenshots about data like that coming out of, out of China in like November of 2019 thinking, yeah, yeah this is probably going to be a major thing for the world. And, you know, lo and behold, here we are two and a half years later. So, yeah, and a, and a big part of it is being able to take that deep breath and trust yourself. It's having that first aha moment to say, you know, my analysis is just as good as the guy who's on CNBC, the guy who's on stage. I mean, all you got to do is watch financial media. It's just, people getting it wrong all day, mm -hmm. every day, you know, by the way, while we were recording this uh, just five minutes ago, MicroStrategy just put out a press release that Michael Saylor is going to be stepping down as CEO of the wow. company. And he will remain the chairman of the board of directors and an executive officer of the company. And I'll read a second here from the press release. We're breaking some news, even though the uh, podcast probably won't go out for a day or two, but Saylor has served as CEO since 89, 1989. I believe that splitting the roles of chairman and CEO will enable us to better pursue our two corporate strategies of acquiring and holding Bitcoin and growing our enterprise analytics software business. As executive chairman, I'll be able to focus more on our Bitcoin acquisition strategy and related Bitcoin advocacy initiatives, while Fong, who is the, that's the name of the person who's taking over, Fong Lee, will be empowered as CEO to manage overall corporate operations, which to me, now here's my, you know, speaking of intuition, here's my two cents on this without reading any of it or taking in their financial highlights or anything. Let's just actually take a look at the financial highlights. Lost from operation, they lost $918.1 million in the quarter. Uh, that might have something to do with it. <laughs> you know, um, my, my take on this real quick is the board probably said there has to be some accountability because we just took massive losses on our Bitcoin over the last six months. And he's been the guy heading that up and it's time to maybe protect the other interests of the company and also make it look as though the board is doing something. Yeah. So interesting little development here, at the end of the podcast. Absolutely. All right, Chris. Well, I just want to remind our listeners, your podcast is available everywhere, Quoth the Raven podcast, and then your substack, quoththeraven.substack.com. Excellent writing, and I've I've enjoyed reading all the articles that I can. And of course, on Twitter, you're you know just a, a wealth of information as well at, at QTR Research. Chris, I want to thank you so much for your time today, man. Really appreciate Tom, it. Thank you, brother. And now we can finally 
take a couple months off from each other. I'll catch back <laughs> up with you in the Q4. Probably maybe we can talk. All right. Sounds good, man. Always happy to have you back. <laughs> Thanks Tom. Bye-bye. Take care. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.